back time to knock the rust off it's kyle the lesser of the two nobodies um this is going to be sloppy uh you know i haven't been sleeping much but excited to be back and um to be talking about what we're talking about today which is a book that i read a little while ago called uh, the coddling of the american mind uh, written by greg lukanoff and jonathan height and we'll get into them and the book and all that stuff in a couple of minutes and why i thought it was interesting and why we should talk about it but uh first of all it's just happy to be here and hoping that repress can kind of put up with <laughs> how poorly this is gonna go because i haven't been in front of a microphone for what feels like i don't know like a year how you doing buddy I'm good. I'm happy to have you. I'm happy to have you. I, um, you know, it's always fun and way easier to do these with you. Uh, and the conversations are a lot livelier and way funnier. So, yes. Wow, great. Now the pressure's on. Although this yeah. episode, I'm going to be leading it, and you're sort of the, like you're sort of the setup guy here. So we'll need some, uh, you know, some timely remarks from you to really push the episode forward okay i'll do that well that, come on that's terrible so far <laughs> yeah i know terrible is a setup man you're still the foremost nobody by the way so if this flops that's on you okay. um how you doing buddy how was your well how's your life how's uh you, honestly i think just when the weather turns and we get into our you know michelle and i can get into the garden and and Davina's enjoying gardening, and that just brings up our spirits for sure. So that's that's a big help. Yeah, big um, yard. Hey, are you guys, uh, what are you planting this year? What do you got? What's the oh, what's the plan for the garden? Michelle's got this whole thing organized on her side. I'm still trying to figure out blueberries. Like, if anyone knows and has gotten blueberries done right, I mean, I think in our climate zone, like, what are we, 3A or something like that? Um, if anyone's... <laughs> if I don't anyone's, know. <laughs> Edmonton. Uh, if anyone has planted blueberries in our zone is successful, uh, hit us up, put some comments in, because uh, I'm still trying to figure it out. It's been a couple of years. Uh, we've had some blueberries, but hasn't been that great. So I'm I, I'm I'm in charge of berries. Like that's my thing yeah. uh, is to really get some good berries down. And Michelle's, you know, with her naturopathic background, she just wants to be like this herbalist. So she's got all kinds of medicinal things kind of going on and then mm. and then my mom's just doing her thing as well so we all kind of got our own plot of land at the patel house here yep. and uh it seems to be working out okay so good why blueberries yeah. like why not because like, i mean raspberries if you just we like, got raspberries. throw a raspberry at the ground it'll grow like and strawberries too are pretty easy aren't they like aren't strawberries aren't are those... like weeds yeah they just grow like anything yeah strawberries haven't been an issue for us uh raspberries have been okay but for some reason, they're not growing as well as I thought. Hmm. Um, but the blueberries apparently are a little fickle. So hmm. uh, Strawberries are, well, I'm going to mess this up. They're either stoloniferous or rhizomatous. And what that it sounds means, like a dinosaur. Right? <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, what that means is they basically, um, they just like sprout up a little shoot, either above ground. If, they're, if it's above ground, 
They're called Stoloniferous, I think. If it's a blow ground, they're called Rhizomatous. I think somebody's going to correct me on that. Um, but basically, they just like do a little shoot. It like grows above the ground and then goes back in the ground and then produces a plant. That's why they just like spread like crazy. Yeah, I got a bunch of bozos then because that's that's exactly what's going on in our garden. They're just oh, but they're, they're they're doing this so delicious. Yeah, no. Like, like well, you never have too many strawberries. No, and you can easily grow them. Like several of them that we've grown, we've just taken organic strawberries from the store and just planted them in the ground, and they just grow so easily. It works. So. That's, man, you last year we planted some butternut squash seeds from the grocery store. Like we just yeah. gutted a butternut squash and planted the seeds. Grew so well, except for it never produced any squash. It would flower and flower and flower. It was like 15 feet long. Flower, flower, flower. Never excuse me, uh, never ever um, produce any fruit. And we figured out because companies that sell squash to mm. large retailers, um, they do a little bit of, um, what do you call that? The genetic modifying? Yeah, yeah, to like make sure that the plant doesn't produce fruit so that you can't, so that you have to go back to the store and buy your squash. You can't just steal a seed. You got the GMO kind, man. You got to get well, that yeah, non-GMO hey, you know organic got- stuff. Yeah, well, I got no problem with GMOs because GMOs have uh, saved billions of lives. So I, I'm not a huge, I'm not a huge uh, anti-GMOer. Organic, when they I'm con- all about. Yeah, but see, this is the thing: is that it's 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 the issue is the seed, right? Is like a lot of these big companies now are controlling the seed, right? And so now you have to go through these big companies because they have the rights to seeds. Like that, to me, takes it too far, right? Like you should be able to buy butternut squash and be able to grow those seeds. But the fact that they modified them and control that, like that's just, you can't control the food supply that much. Like I think that's yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm hesitant to put a broad brush across GMOs is a bad thing because the Green Revolution saved like billions of people. And that was that's that's like GMO. And I read something that um said that carrots if they had never done selective breeding or any kind of gmo anything with carrots carrots would resemble like dandelion roots like they'd be mm. sort of gross and bitter but like selective breeding and all stuff have produced delicious carrots so uh anyways we could do a whole episode on gmo um, we probably should pressure yeah, yeah. To talk it, about it's, it. it's an interesting carrots. topic um controversial as heck though yeah, can be for sure. Um, and I think that's it, it's problematic when people just paint something that's GMO with a broad brush and say it's all bad. I think that that's... I agree. I think I think you bring up a good point because, it, like, I think I think people when they think about GMO foods, they think about like that Roundup Ready corn. Yeah, and you know what I mean. Like, they think like, like, about like Monsanto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, Whereas just, I'm sure there, are, where I'm sure like you know, the selective. You know, we do that. Farmers will probably do that all the time where they have like a really good crop yield and they'll particularly use those seeds because they would have gotten, you know, really good fruit or or whatever they got Mm -hmm. from there and then make sure they use those seeds in particular. Right. I mean, that's just kind of selective breeding. But I think sometimes these companies take it a little too far. Yeah. Anyways, that's that we we, we should uh, earmark that for a whole other episode because it's super interesting. Um and it sounds like maybe we're, we align on, on on some separate ends of the spectrum there. So maybe we'd have a bit of a debate. Maybe it's in our so. friendship. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Could we'll be. Have to see. Could we don't be. really argue much about stuff, you and me. 
No, I'm actually a little surprised. Even though you said like you like organics, but you're not all about the non-GMO. Because if you're well, buying like, organic, if you're buying organic, you're it's non-GMO. That's not true though, because there's no food that we eat that hasn't been genetically altered at some point in history. You're not eating food from thousands of years ago. You're eating food that has absolutely been altered. Sure, I. But that's sort of like a natural process. That's kind no, of no. It's not. It's it's since agriculture has come in, people will selectively breed things, and that's like gene mapping and like gene altering so but what i guess what i'm saying is like is it hasn't happened in a, like a laboratory you know what i mean like where they've actually yeah. manipulated the gene, genes that way yeah i get i mean i like organic more from the perspective of no pesticides uh because that's like straight poisons in your body right i mean right. and i i understand that there's value to pesticides too and if every if everything was produced organically, the amount of land that would be required is astronomical. But like my mom had an organic food store growing up. We buy organic food. I, I absolutely appreciate that. Uh, and I, I also understand that we're lucky to be able to afford it. But um, I think if you, I, anyways, this is another episode. I have no problem with, with genetic modification, certainly to a point. And I think that looking at individual cases of times where it's been really positive would be helpful. And, and yeah, there's obviously like, like some negative genetic altering going on with food. But I personally, if somebody came to me and said, Kyle, you can get rid of all genetic altering of food or you could keep it all, I, I, I would absolutely keep it all. Mm. Um, Fair point. Maybe, yeah, honestly, maybe we should do like a, just you and I kind of do dig into like a one-on-one and make sure we kind of get the facts straight so that you're not talking gibberish. I'm not talking gibberish. I'm oh, just yeah, reading sorry. the book right now. On Everybody go oh, read a book sorry. called Enlightenment yeah. Now by Steven Pinker. If you're feeling a little bit down in the dumps, you're feeling like, this is the worst time to be alive. You're feeling like the environments, uh, I'm not going to get into it. Like it's, he has a really good way of saying, Hey, things aren't perfect right now, but this is probably the best time to be alive mm. in history. And he gives just a bunch of reasons of that. And genetic altering of food, GMO food is actually an example that he has. So, um, I, anyways, we're sort of, uh, man, this, this intro has been way more interesting than the actual, episodes. we don't even have, I don't do intros anymore. I, I just felt like it just kind of start talking with people and, just no, it's go. good. I mean, so like this, whatever, this first, however long we've been talking, this first 10 minutes is going to be more interesting than the rest of the episode, but we have to get to it. Um, so I, uh, maybe we just hop over to this Coddling of the American Mind. And so I, I read this book like three years ago after seeing Jonathan Haidt on the Joe Rogan show. And he was talking about sort of trends that were appearing in American universities, particularly around when controversial speakers would come mm. to campuses and then people would block off or uh, make it very difficult for, for people to attend those um, those sessions with those speakers because they found that what they were saying was controversial or um, maybe was insulting or maybe mm-hmm. was uh the word that, that they used was maybe aggressive or they were you know pushing microaggressions towards people and um he had some really interesting points which i'll kind of talk about when i get through the book and so that that's uh turned me on to this book he wrote it with a guy named greg lukanoff um so jonathan Haidt is a uh he's an american social psychologist and he's a professor of ethical leadership at new york university um, his main areas of studies are psychology of morality and moral emotions. That's his, his um, Wikipedia page. His co-author is a guy named Greg Lukanoff, and he is the president of uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, hmm. which is a nonprofit group founded in 1999 that focuses on protecting free speech rights on college campuses in the United States. So the way that I understand FIRE, or Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, 
is that students can kind of approach them. He's a lawyer by trade, and so if you were on campus and you felt that your freedom of speech was being infringed upon or um, mm -hmm. your rights to, to freedom of speech were being sort of restricted, you would approach FIRE, and mm -hmm. they would likely give you legal representation to sort of challenge that with the university. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I think that the idea for the book came from Greg Lukanoff when he was noticing these trends on on um, university campuses, where there was there were a lot of challenges to freedom of speech in ways like I just mentioned, where people were blocking, um, like Milo Yiannopoulos, whatever his name yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Who's the guy? Yeah. Um, ben. Oh man, this is gonna bug me. Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were blocking him from uh, giving speeches at, mm. at universities. And the way that they approach it in the book is like, this is sort of a weird thing because in the, in the 60s, so most of these, so generally speaking, university campuses are left-leaning, meaning that there's a high representation of people with um, left-of-center political views than there are right-of-center. And that's always mm. been true throughout history. And the dynamic now or the ratio is much higher than it's ever been. So the, the um, there's a much higher representation of say liberal point of views than there are say conservative for us in Canada. Mm -hmm. And what he noticed was a lot of the groups, and this might get a little controversial. And I'm hoping to not frame it in a way that paints one side as as being bad. Um, and actually, this is this you know this is where I fall on the political spectrum too. I definitely fall left of center. But he was noticing that a lot of the speakers that were being blocked had right-leaning views and they were being blocked by people that were part of groups like Antifa or uh, that were more left of center. And obviously Antifa is the far left of center, likely. Mm -hmm. um, and so he started looking into it and he, he had identified a couple trends that really concerned him because Greg Lukanoff suffered from uh, a severe depression to the point that he almost killed himself one day and, and, and they talk about it in the book. But a lot of the traits that are – and so this is sort of where Jonathan Haidt comes in because he's a bit of a psychologist. A lot of the traits that are um, common or a lot of the thinking traits in people that are depressed, you know, so they get sort of in these negative feedback loops of, of thinking and behavior. Um, a lot of those traits he was noticing in these conversations that were happening on, on, on these university campuses. And so he was really, really concerned. He's like, like, why am I noticing these patterns um, when we're talking about like, like political discussions and mm -hmm. people claiming that these people can't come talk because they're, you know, because they're um, they're being microaggressive towards them or they're even assaulting them or they're causing them trauma. Um, and he, he he thought, well, that's a that's a bit of a slippery slope when we start talking about how words can cause trauma. Um, and so they decided to write this book. They uh, first wrote an article, I think, in like the New York Times or New Yorker magazine, and it was the most read article that year. And it was basically mm. saying, "Here's the here's the things that we're noticing on on university campuses, and here's why we're concerned, and here's some examples of it." The reason that the book was interesting to me, though, was because um, at the at the time that I read the book initially, I was either a brand new parent or about to be a parent. And what they talk about is trends in young kids as well and, and sort of what's going on, what's going on with youth today and um, even people, you know, from from 5 to 12 and then 12 to 20 and then 20 to 30 and sort of those generations um, and what what in their in their early life 
uh, as they're growing up, what are they experiencing? What's changed that's kind of led to this sort of viewpoint shift on on on, on um, university campuses? Mm. And so they talk about sort of um, what what's happening to kids, what parents are doing that's they think are um, contributing, contributing to, these, to, this, yeah. to this sort of alarming shift of viewpoints on on university campuses. So uh, I'll just kind of dive into my summary of the book, maybe then you and I can kind of just have a chat and I'll just encourage you to sort of jump in and challenge me on anything. Full disclosure, I reread the book like four or five months ago, took a bunch of notes, have not read them since. Uh, so I'm just going through them right now. So I hope that, that this flows and I hope that, that, that this stuff kind of comes back to me. But, um, you know, just sort of full disclosure there. So the book uh, has three parts to it. And so the first part uh, explains three psychological principles, uh, and they show how some recent practices and policies on many campuses encourage students to embrace what the authors call unwisdoms or untruths. Mm. Um, and there's, I think that, that there's three great unwisdoms or three great untruths that, that, that they talk about. The first one is uh, the untruth that, that um, kids and young adults are anti-fragile. Um, so basically saying like, what, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And that's sort of play on words from Nietzsche or Nietzsche's, um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. And so obviously that's an exaggeration. Like some things that don't kill you will cause permanent physical and, and mental damage and mm. with lifelong repercussions. But the untruth of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker gets at how parents today are trying to protect their kids from stressors and reasonable mm. risks and small doses of pain. And that, that, that isn't a good thing. Um, they argue that children aren't fragile and that they require stressors and challenges and reasonable risk to learn, adapt, and grow as people. And if you shield them from that, it, it, it sort of stunts their growth in those areas. So they, um, they relate to, to an immune system that needs to be exposed to colds and flus to get stronger, right? I was just going to say, because like from the physical, like you take emotions out of the whole thing. And that's how the human body works. That's how it repairs itself. That's why we exercise or work out or, you know, you put stress on the body and, and you build your body to a new, you know, better state. And the immune system is a great example as well. But as soon as you add these emotions to it, it's like so hard to then um, view stressors as a, as a, as, a good as an appropriate, yeah, as a good thing, right? It's, to it's, sort of it's build hard to see up. your kid struggle or oh, watch your kid do goodness. something where you know, he's like, he's like, this is like, he's going to get hurt you know, in a, in a responsible way, but like, you, you know, either mentally or physically, like, um, but you sort of have to let him learn that lesson the hard way. Cause that'll stick a thousand times more than it will. If you tell him not to do it or her not to do it. What, what, what's been your approach with, with, um, with Lowell? Like, for example, if you know that something is risky, like, how do you, like, for example, at the playground or whatever, right? Like Avina has, I don't know, about two months ago, she started, um, walking up those, like these metal bars where there's like lots of gaps in between. And it's like, I could just picture her slipping and her, her head hitting that thing. And you're just all these visuals kind of go through, yeah. but what's been your process? Like, or how are you kind of approaching that? Uh, honestly, this book has shaped that a little bit. I probably, it's funny with the first kid compared to the second with the, with, with our first son, I, people describe me as a helicopter parent. Absolutely. I would, Sort of how, like when he was learning to walk, I, I was right there all the time because I didn't want him to fall, right? Like I didn't want him to, but really, mm. I bet you if, if you let him fall a couple of times, they sort of figured out and it probably helps, but I didn't, I didn't want to let him fall. I didn't want to let him hurt himself. And obviously there's, 
you know, there's a reasonable um, amount of risk to expose them to. So, you know, you, I, I think that you just sort of have to do a calculation. Like, okay, he's doing something now. And what if he were to fall or hurt himself? How bad would it be? Well, no, not like, not that bad. So I should probably let him do it. Or yeah, he could really get hurt here. And actually the example they use in the book is kids. Um, I, I think Jonathan Haidt tells a story about there's this, uh, it must be in New York, but there's this place where you can take your kids and it's basically like a junkyard. Okay. And like, there's so like there's wood and there's tools and all this stuff and there's nails and shit. Okay. And, but like, <laughs> you can take your kids there and let them play amongst this stuff. And he said that he was taking his kids there and he watched somebody else's kid and he was learning how to nail a, a nail into a board. <clears throat> and he could see that his hand was way too close to the nail. But he didn't say anything. A, it's not his kid, but B, he just kind of wanted to see what like the other parent would do. And the other parent, Basically, like, let the kid hit his thumb with the hammer, and he just like, and it hurt the kid, and he like reacted, and he shook it off, and he was upset. But then he went right back to nailing it, and then he like mm -hmm. nailed the thing in, and then he knew again, like he knew not to put his thumb so close to the nail next time. Um, so I don't know, man. I don't have like a standard approach that I sort of adhere to. It uh, it's it's really hard. It, it's easy to like talk about it, but it's really hard to be like, okay. You know, he's, he's, um, whatever he, he's like teetering on that step. That's like three feet above the mm -hmm. sand. If he falls back, he's probably going to be okay. But you know, the, I also find that I do this weird thing and actually they, they talk about it in the book and this is something that's common in depression where you, um, you always assume the worst possible outcome mm. or you the worst possible interpretation of a scenario and the worst possible outcome. If mm. I don't pass this test, I'm going to flunk out of university. I'm never going to get a job and I'm going to be homeless. Mm. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like toward that downward spiral of negative thinking. And I find sometimes that when Lowell is like doing something and I'm like, Oh man, if he were to fall here, he could like roll off that and then hit his head on that and then fall over. Like just, you know what I mean? And it could be yeah, really, yeah, really yeah. bad. When yeah. really he's probably just going to like fall on his butt and then get yeah. up and like not even really notice. I wonder if in the book, and maybe you'll talk about this, but the challenge, I don't, I don't know if it's a challenge, but I, I want to do, like I, I want to kind of let Avina be herself and just kind of figure it out. And if she falls and hurts herself, obviously again, looking at sort of how badly she could get hurt or whatever, um, weighs into your mind, but like, but on her end, she is very cautious, right? Mm -hmm. She is the one who's like, she wants us to help her. Right. And it's like, it could be something as like, you, like I would interpret as sort of low risk, but like sometimes she wants that assistance. So then I always try to catch myself because it's like, I don't want to push her or force her because I know that if I do that, she's just going to resist the whole thing. And I want her to kind of just discover and, and do and, 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 and just play. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's like hard to figure out how to balance, you know, her personality, which is again, a little bit more risk averse and shy and that kind of thing with like, okay, just kind of letting her go forward and, and being, yeah. you know, and if she's asking you for help, you, you want to be there for her. Like yeah. you would hate it yeah. if she's because like, Daddy, help me. You're like, no, let, yeah. Let, you break the trust. Yourself. Right. And, and then she gets hurt and you're like, well, it's like, what is that? Like, how does she view me now? Like, is uh, well, and I would I think know. that if you don't have, if if growing up, if Avina doesn't feel like her, she can't trust her core, which you would think would include her parents, that that would also contribute to fragility, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's a, it's an easy thing to sort of theorize about and a hard thing to, to enact it. It's sort of abide by with your actions. I find anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so they talk about, um, so to kind of drive this home with a, um, real world example, they talk about peanut allergies in kids. Mm. And so, um, peanut bans in schools were a big thing in, you know, I, I think since like the mid nineties to now, but peanut bans in schools have actually increased the number of severe peanut allergies in certainly North America. Mm. So in the 1990s, about four in a thousand kids had a peanut allergy, but by 2008, that rate had more than tripled to 14 in a thousand. Mm. Uh, and they surged pre- precisely because kids were not being exposed to peanuts. So like the advice was don't give your kid mm-hmm. a peanut until they're four or whatever it is mm-hmm. or two, I'm not, I'm not, but like not right away, right? Um, and they had an interesting stat that said, um, as countries become more wealthy, allergy rates in kids actually increase due to increased hygiene and the presence of antibiotics and reduced outdoor play. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just argued that like parents are overprotecting their kids and ensuring that they're not exposed to risk, stress or challenges more now than they probably ever have been before. Um, but you know, risks and stressors are all natural, unavoidable parts of life. And by, mm-hmm. by sheltering your kids from that, you're actually hurting them more than anything. And, you know, obviously within reason, like if your kid wants to climb a tree, yeah, probably let them. But if your kid wants to juggle knives, probably don't let them do that. Mm. Um, so that was sort of their, their first of three great untruths. Uh, second one is uh, emotional reasoning and confirmation bias. And it's related to sort of always follow your gut. And really the the data mm. shows that you should almost never follow your gut. Um, so people often take our feelings to be an accurate representation of reality. Um, then our feelings are always compelling, but they're not always reliable. And following your feelings can result in a distorted view of reality at the same time. Uh, they outline some cognitive distortions that sometimes are used when people buy into their feelings as, as fact, which isn't ideal. And these distortions are commonly seen in people with depression. So that's sort of what I was talking about before. And so he, like, here's a few examples of these, um, of these cognitive distortions that are found in people who generally sort of go with their gut all the time. So emotional reasoning, like I talked about, which is letting your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would say, oh, I feel sad. So obviously things are bad or I feel depressed. So obviously the world is bad. Mm. Um, when reality might not be as bad as you perceive mm-hmm. it. Uh, next one they talk about is catastrophizing, which what I was just talking about, which is where you focus on the worst possible outcome and see it as, as the most likely, even though it's probably not the most likely. So, so like I was saying before, I'm going to fail this test. I'm not going to pass university. I'm never going to get a job. I'm going to be homeless living in my car the rest of my life. Uh, overgeneralizing, so perceiving a global pattern of negatives based on a single event. And so you, so we talked about sort of that, that, that thing before, and uh, we were talking about GMOs, but painting things with a broad mm-hmm. brush isn't helpful. And so even like conversations, if you're left-leaning like I am on the political spectrum, saying, well, everybody who votes not liberal or not to the left of center, every single one of them, uh, aren't worth talking to and they're all racist and they're all bigots and whatever, cause I'm over generalizing. Um, and that, that tends to happen more w- when people are following their gut, uh, dichotomous thinking. So this is more of like black or white thinking. Mm. Um, and this sort of leads it or kind of builds off of what we were just talking about the overgeneralizing piece, but viewing people or events in an all or nothing term. So if like, 
if you asked a girl out on a date and she was like, nope, not doing it, you'd be like, oh, all women hate me. Like, it's like black mm-hmm. or white. It's like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thinking. And the last one is negative filtering, which is where you focus on the negative outcomes only as a, and, and ignore the positive outcomes. And I, I think a lot of people do this naturally, where if, if you heard 100 compliments in a week, but one person said, you're an idiot, you would remember that you're an idiot more than oh, you would the, sure. the, yeah. the 100 compliments. Yeah. And so these are sort of these cognitive distortions that um, are linked to people with sort of this emotional reasoning, confirmation bias, always following their gut. But they're also seen often in people with depression. And these are sort of these traits that they were seeing a lot of with university students when they started looking into these things recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so cognitive distortions aren't aren't good, obviously, but they can be treated through a process called cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which basically makes people examine uh, negative beliefs associated with those distortions that we just talked about and consider the counter evidence to it. And that sort of helps break that negative feedback cycle and helps people reverse some of those distortions. And it can be really difficult to learn, but it's been proven to work. Um, even even things like meditation can kind of help with that and like this CBT therapy or even some drugs like antidepressants or like Prozac sort of help that part of your brain um, sort of reverse that that, yeah. that negative aspect of thinking apparently is how I interpret it in the book. I'm certainly not a uh, people at drugstores who pharmacist. I am not a pharmacist. <laughs> um, We're just going to so put that's... a vague thing like take Prozac in the video right now. <laughs> I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Don't listen to any medical advice we give you. But that's they talk about it in the book. That yeah. There are ways to kind of combat these sort of negative cognitive distortions and cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, antidepressant medication or meditation. All that stuff sort of helps um, kind of bring those those uh, cognitive distortions in check a little Sorry, bit. Sorry, just so I can um, wrap all of this in my head. So these are the things that they're seeing with young kids or people who were kind of like more fragile. Sorry, I'm trying to just wrap up, uh, wrap it all kind of in a bow in terms of these untruths or whatever. Yeah. So, so sorry. So they, um, they noticed recent practices and policies on many campuses that encourage students to embrace these great untruths. Mm, And so the first one is, so they, and they're all built on these psychological principles, right? So the first one was, uh, the great untruth that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And it's mm-hmm. based on this this principle that young people are fragile when really they're anti-fragile. So you shouldn't mm-hmm. be exposing them to stressors, right? So the second one is the, is the great untruth of always trust your feelings. So, so that emotional reasoning, confirmation, bias, peace. And, the, um, and all folks are, are sort of um, prone to some form of emotional reasoning and, and confirmation bias, but um, the piece of wisdom that they attach to maybe why you shouldn't always trust your feelings is your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded, but once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or mother. So like, if you have an understanding that you shouldn't always trust your feelings and you should be using, you know, reason and evidence and facts to kind of base your, base your views on life and your conclusions and your beliefs, as opposed to what you feel in your gut. Um, but they're seeing the exact opposite. They're seeing these policies and practices on campuses where people are just following their gut, taking it as fact, and then, you know, um, sort of refusing to see 
the other side of things, even though they might mm -hmm. present reason and fact and, mm -hmm. and, and evidence and all that stuff. Not checking their assumptions, making inferences. Totally, totally. Yeah. And then yeah. the last uh, untruth is sort of this us versus them, this, this idea. And this sort of builds off those cognitive distortions, right? The overgeneralizing, the mm -hmm. black and white thinking. But the last great untruth is um, life is a battle between good people and evil people. Meaning that you're either good or you're bad. There are good guys and there are bad guys. And if if you're on the good side, everybody else is bad. And so that sort of goes to that that um, liberal versus conservative, or sort of this this huge sort of polarization that we're seeing right now in politics, certainly in North America, particularly in the United States, with the last election, Donald Trump. And um, there's this real um, sort of broad brush being used to paint either side of those plectrums of those political spectrums and each side of those spectrums and, and not everybody again, but there's a lot of people and again, students on university campuses um, to a higher degree are saying, these are my beliefs and this is the group or tribe that I'm part of and, and I, and we're good and everybody else is bad. And really never... that's, that's not really the, the truth at all. Right? Like it's like life simply isn't, isn't that simple. There aren't just good people and bad people and they sort of, link it back to how the human mind has evolved to live in tribes that historically engage in like frequent conflict with other tribes. Mm -hmm. And our modern day minds continue to divide the world into us versus them, even based on trivial things. And experiments have proven this. So in one, researchers showed a video of a hand being pricked with a needle to someone. Um, and so they showed this video, right? So your hand's not being pricked, but you're watching a hand being pricked on a video. And they measured their brain activity in the region of the brain that handles pain. Um, and when the hand being pricked had a religion written on it that was the same religion of the person watching the video, their pain center showed more activity than when a different religion was written on that hand. So does mm. that make sense? So like you're watching a video, your hand is not being pricked, but mm. you're watching a video and there's sort of this ability of the brain mm. to sort of empathize with something, right? And so it's saying, oh, that would probably hurt. But your brain registers it being more painful if the religion that you practice is written on that hand on the video, which is insane. Like that's, mm. I don't know, that's insane to me. So um, if, you, if you're if you're Christian and the person pricking the hand is says it's Christian written on their hand or whatever, they, it's like almost if you're if that pain center is firing, is that interpreted as sort of a negative thing? Then like they're like I don't well, understand. It, sort of it's saying like. So you relate to that. So you relate to that person. It's like if you were, if there's a video and your mom is on the video and they were going to prick her hand versus if you were watching the video and it was some guy you had no idea who it was and, mm -hmm. and they pricked his hand, um, you would probably, it would probably be harder for you to watch and you'd probably empathize more with that video of your mother being pricked. Oh, it's sorry. Sort it's, the, it's the person who's getting pricked has the same is sort of the same denomination as you would be right so not the so, person who's giving the the needle or whatever right right so like let's yeah, say that you rupesh are a scientologist and you uh so you walk into this lab and on the screen they put a video up and they show one video of a hand that has nothing written on it and they prick it and in your brain your brain goes ouch that would hurt uh, you know, to one unit. And then they bring in the next person and they write, you know, not Scientology, they write um, whatever, Hinduism on there. And they prick that hand. And you aren't a Hindu, let's say. And so 
you know, then your brain's like, ouch, that would hurt one unit of pain. But then they write Scientology on there. Mm, got it. And, okay. and then when they pick the Scientology hand, your brain goes, ouch. And it says, ouch, that would hurt two units of pain because you like associate with this word and mm -hmm. you think, well, that person mm -hmm. is from my tribe. And so that hurts mm. more. So like the, it, it's like this uncognitive thing. Like, like you're not thinking about it. It's just mm -hmm. in your brain. Mm -hmm. Your brain has evolved to be part of a tribe. And, you know, many, many years ago, and in some parts of the world today, you know, there's still tribal conflict, right? And so you're like, I'm part of this tribe and they, and like we're good and they're part of a tribe and they're bad. Um, but that doesn't really matter in today's world. And certainly it's not that simple, at least not in the part of the world that we live in. So this tribalism can kind of cause us to bind ourselves to a certain group who share similar mm -hmm. traits, but most of the time, like to a fault. So we embrace these groups moral matrix and stop thinking as individuals, right? There's that whole group think mm -hmm. piece. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we talked about that in our group think episode. Um, so, yeah, so, so these authors, so Jonathan and Greg, notice sort of these three truths in the policies and principles and the thought processes of university campuses in North America. So that's part one of the book. So they talk about these three great untruths. So a couple of things, just sorry, if I, a couple yep. of things come to mind. So one, do they actually say whether they notice these things with certain, um, certain disciplines that the students are taking? Like, do they see more of these things, uh, revealing themselves in like art students or like, or maybe not so much in science majors. And I only say that just because, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're in the social sciences or even like the, the physical sciences, when you're going through that process, you're supposed to generally, especially if you're doing research, you're trying to prove your hypothesis wrong. You're really trying to challenge yourself to look on both sides and train yeah. your mind in a way where you're not relying on sort of some sort of confirmation bias, right? And so I kind of wonder whether they're seeing that in science students and science majors as well, or are they seeing that in sort of the non-science, more arts majors and I don't know if they speak to that, but that, that was one thing. And then the second piece was on, on, um, when you talk about, when you talk about kind of, uh, this issue of, of coming from the gut and, and, and people making judgments based on their emotions. I think it's good that you sort of clarify from the emotions. Cause where, where my head was going was that there is, you know, a large part of our, our central nervous system is guided by our unconscious brain, right? And it's filtering information all the time and making judgments. And that's really where a lot of the action and, and, and things are happening. And so there's a lot of wisdom that your unconscious part of your central nervous system has taken in and you want to trust those things, right? That That's what allows us to do automatic tasks and, and all kinds of stuff. But what you're saying is more on the, on the feeling side. So, yeah, it's, so it's, I, I, it's I, I, like, I'm glad you made that sort of distinction. Totally. It's, it's more like, um, um, all it's saying is like, with rational thought, uh, if you just sort of get rid of rational thought, if you avoid evidence-based discussions, if you um, kind of uh, ignore all reason and you just go with whatever your gut says, yeah, and and yeah. sort of don't challenge that, don't don't open up critical conversations towards it. Um, that's sort of what they're getting at. Is you can, yeah, you can have sort sense. of this visceral feeling towards something, but if you're unwilling to challenge it and to read up on it and to, to hear what somebody else has to say, 
Uh, that's something about Ben Shapiro. The guy's an asshole, there's no doubt. But every single viewpoint he has, he comes back with stats, with mm-hmm. facts. And so you need – I always enjoy conversations with people debating him because if it's a good one, they both have a ton of facts he, and, he, and they're both kind of sharing it back and forth. And I'm not saying I, I like Ben Shapiro. I certainly do not. But he has made a lot of people who don't come ready with facts and reason and science and evidence look like idiots. Even if, even if their viewpoint's right, uh, he makes them look very stupid because he's very, very, very well-researched. He is very well researched, and he he's able to pull these facts out. I would also say he is an excellent communicator, right? Like he's able to say yeah. with a ton of confidence and very concisely to the point of where it's like you feel very shut down by hearing those facts. Those facts, though, I mean, some things could be stretched and they could be interpreted facts sure, or whatever. But, but the way your... he exactly it means nothing, yeah. right? Totally. That's the thing. Like you got to yeah. come with your A game with that guy. Yeah. Um, and so I. Even like guys like Jordan Peterson, so these controversial guys who say things I don't agree with. You know, Jordan Peterson doesn't agree with same-sex marriage, and I don't, I don't agree with that. But on a lot of other points, he'll, you know, he comes with studies, 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 studies that like back up his viewpoints, and so he he has sort of established his position with data and facts and science. I'm not, I'm not saying he's right because I'm sure that um, if you're coming into these arguments, you know. You just need to make sure that you have your your evidence, your facts, all in a row, right? And so I I think that's what they're getting at is if if you just feel like something's right or wrong, and and then you just take that as as truth, or if you perceive something in the world in a certain way and you just take that as truth, um, that 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 is not a healthy practice. You need to be open to to, to sort of test your assumptions, and you need to be able to. Um, be open to, like I was saying, evidence and reason and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's the big point mm. that, that, yeah. that they were trying to make. Yeah. Uh, and as far as the majors, I don't remember. They could talk about it, whether it's an arts major or a mm. you know, science major or whatever it is. I, I, they probably do talk about it, but I don't recall mm. off the top of my head. Sorry about that. Yeah, okay. Um, so part two, they talk about um, what happens. So they talk about some examples of, of what happens um, on university campuses when students sort of adopt these three great untruths. Um, and they say that it's it's sort of because these institutions fall victim to, they have low levels of viewpoint diversity. And that's what I was talking about before, where if you were, um, I wonder if I have some stats here, it doesn't look like I do, but, you know, 30 years ago, the representation to left-leaning, poli- to like um, professors, with left-leaning politics versus professors with right-leaning, say it was two to one. Mm. And now that number is much more tilted towards the left-leaning. So there's much lower viewpoint diversity on campuses mm. on average in the United States. Uh, they talk about weak leadership. So generally the president or um, high-ranking members of the faculty or the administration uh, that sort of cave into these sort of three great untruths that they talk about. Uh, and a high sense of, of, of threat. So those are the three things why they think these are happening on, on, on um, university campuses. So these levels of, of, of viewpoint diversity, weak leadership, and a high sense of threat. Um, and, they, and that last point, the, the, the high sense of threat, they say is caused in part by a real escalation of political polarization and provocation from off, off-campus groups, which is true, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. think about um, that woman that was killed uh, by the vehicle that kind of rammed its way mm-hmm. through, mm-hmm. Um, through the Charlotte's, Charlotte's down. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
not to say that that these events aren't linked in some way or another to you know actual threats to people uh, or escalation of sort of political polarization and provocation from from some off-campus groups. They just flag that. Um, they highlight a number of examples of riots on university campuses when contentious and sometimes not contentious speakers were invited to talk. Uh, sometimes these protests turned violent and people were injured with no consequences handed out from the university. And like in the day of, so now in social media, like even since the 2000, remember when the Vancouver Canucks lost the Stanley Cup mm -hmm. finals and there was riots mm -hmm. and, you know, it happened in 94, but it happened mm -hmm. again in 2010. And yeah. in 2010, they were charging people based on Facebook videos and pictures and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. So at these riots, because this stuff happens on university campus, apparently it's up to the university to kind of deal with, with any kind of charges that, that, that they want to pursue. And there's examples of riots where people are being assaulted. Like they're like people had their noses broken or concussions when violent. Uh, and they, they cite Antifa um, groups where these sort of protests and these blockades to speakers turn violent. And, they, um, and there was no charges per, pursued. And so sort of what message does that send then to students and what what does that say about the university? Mm -hmm. You know, when they're bringing contentious speakers and, um, you know, the freedom of speech. Uh, in the 60s, it was the left-leaning groups that were fighting to bring contentious speakers on campus. And now, you know, there's these contentious speakers that are coming on who are expressing controversial viewpoints and they're being stopped. Um, that's just a pretty big shift in you know, maybe what universities are, are supposed to stand for. And absolutely, if somebody's coming on campus and they're, you know, obviously slinging homophobic or racial slurs or whatever it is, like, you can't have that. But often people that come on to give talks aren't, and they're perceived as being a threat when really maybe they 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 might have contentious views or they might have opposing views. Um, but So when you say threat, threat, and like, threat to what? So they link that to, um, and, and actually here, so... So protesters, uh, so like I was saying, some of these protests turned violent. Um, protesters often use cognitive distortions, like I just talked about, when explaining why they protested. For example, they equated offensive ideas or ideas that were counter to their own beliefs that the speaker may bring up during their talk as uh, quote-unquote assaults that would cause quote-unquote harm, meaning mm -hmm. they felt that they would experience trauma, which is a term usually referring to a threat to someone's life or safety when listening to the ideas that were counter to their beliefs, which is a dangerous link to make, the authors argue. Mm. So mm. if you so so they're linking so they're saying that if you go to see the speaker, uh, the speaker has contentious views on something that maybe you find offensive. Maybe mm. you are an environmentalist and this person is pro oil and they're saying there's no reason to uh, you know, conserve land or whatever it is, they're saying that you might find these these views offensive and mm -hmm. it might cause trauma or it might cause harm to you when really these are just offensive views. And I think that's a pretty mild example. But I think so, for example, guys like Jordan Peterson who were heavily opposed to the bill in Canada that was going to legally require people to call other people by their preferred pronoun. Hmm. And Peterson's example was, and I'm not saying I agree with him, uh, he didn't like the impact that that would have on the ability of Canadians to um, 
uh, to kind of practice free speech because he was saying, well, if we're going to legally require somebody to use a certain form of language when talking to somebody else, that's a bit of a slippery slope to get into from a legislation perspective. So if you're going to have an act that says you legally need to call somebody what they ask you to call them, um, he was sort of against that. And so for, in this example, let's say Jordan Peterson, which like this happened in Edmonton, he was supposed to come talk, I think, at the Citadel Theater, and the Citadel said, no, we're not going to allow you. And the, and the Citadel, I mean, that's a bit of a, that's not a university, like they're a private business. Yes, mm -hmm. they receive a lot of public funding, but they're a private business. But that, but this was happening on, on universities. And so if you were a person who was transgender, and you preferred certain nouns, and there's this guy coming on campus saying, I don't agree with this bill that's going to require people to call you by the noun that, that um, you want to be called by. And mm -hmm. here are the reasons why I don't agree with that. The argument is that that transgender person could then perceive this as um, an assault on them and they would feel harm and they would feel trauma. When the authors argue in reality, it's to that transgender person, it's an offensive, it's an offensive idea, but to link being offended and being harmed or experiencing trauma uh, is a bit of a slippery slope. And so they talk about, uh, people talk about microaggressions and how this language can cause stress in people. And stress does have a significant health benefit, uh, sorry, uh, a significant negative impact to people's health. Mm -hmm, stress mm -hmm. isn't a good thing. But then if you're gonna, and so that's sort of one of the counter arguments that I've read. And the authors say, well, if you're going to say because these offensive or counter ideas cause stress, we're going to link that to trauma or harm, then how come everything that causes stress we wouldn't also consider to be an assault or something? So if you're driving with – if you're in a vehicle and um, whatever, the guy who's driving in the car next to you is driving a little unsafely – that stresses you out. Is he assaulting mm -hmm. you? Is is he causing you harm? Or I'm sure that there are better examples out there. But that's sort of the no, argument I get they you. make. Yeah. Um, and so that was interesting to me. Um, so that's sort of part two. They they talk about what's what's happening, and, and they talk about those examples. And um, you know, the worst case scenario where people were getting assaulted on campus because they wanted to go see these speakers talk. Uh, and as they were walking in, they would get punched in the face or they would be assaulted. And even though the university had um, likely had enough videos, photos of the incident to sort of pursue a charge, they didn't. And they said, well, like, this is like, this is an issue, you know. Uh, this is well, the, the the issue, the, the thing that the concern I have is like, you know, so somebody wants to go see Jordan Peterson speak they may or may not have the same views as Jordan Peterson, but oh. they're just genuinely trying to learn. They're not on an extreme point of view or spectrum, but now all of a sudden that person has got, you know, potentially got insulted by somebody because they're going to go see Jordan Peterson talk. Mm -hmm. What does that do to that person? It just pushes them towards a direction of violence and, totally. or, you know, not to say that will happen, but like it could, right. You've just nudged that person into a direction that is not going to be productive in society. And yeah. this is the whole issue. You know, I've talked about this, like in the electoral system, for instance, right? Like where, you know, 
where you don't have proportional representation systems like we don't have in Canada, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And the fear is that, well, it could drive, you know, extremist points of view, right? Well, in it's true democracy, this is the conversation that we need to have. I understand, of course, like we don't want to have a society where we're threatening, you know, we're, we're threatening the progress that we've made in society by any means. But if people still feel a certain way and they're not in that extremist point of view and they're shaped by certain lived experiences, let's have a conversation about that. Let's have a genuine one. Because if you don't, you just push those people underground and that's when you get the real bad shit happening, right? Totally. And yeah. and it sounds like this is sort of brewing in universities, which is, you know, supposed to be the place of, of real true debate and and scholarly thought. And so it's really sad to hear that, you know, not that I'm surprised by this, and I know that this is happening, but the fact that it's affected a whole generation, and and you know you're seeing that this is this is arrived because of sort of how maybe kids were raised. Um, it's it's incredible. Yeah, and I mean, if the you, the last thing you want is for universities to turn into echo chambers, like you. Yeah. Like you need to go to university to sort of broaden your views and to be challenged and to and to hear those controversial viewpoints and, and to sort of establish your position, you know, if you so feel against it, but then to have a good reason for why you feel that way and to sort of understand things like scientific process and understand peer reviewed science and, and understand reliable data and how you can draw conclusions from reliable data. But if they turn into these echo chambers and so you're only ever hearing one point of view and it's a point of view that's never going to offend anybody, I don't know, man. That's that's a bad place for for um, for universities, particularly, to be. Like these are supposed to be mm -hmm. uh, places of higher learning, and you know, you look at all kinds of of stats on people who go to university and sort of, um, or at least people who who sort of pursue uh, post secondary education and all the benefits that sort of come along with that. And you would you would you would hope that these institutions would continually begin to produce people that would that would experience those benefits or would have those benefits but from the examples that they outline in this book which you can't it's in the united states <clears throat> i don't know it's uh it sort of sets a bit of a depressing um current state of affairs uh which well is and like what's what's the harm in having uh, this person speak and then you know let's say as a class or whatever let's say you guys, you know, a class goes and watches some of these controversial speakers speak and then in their next lecture, they discuss it, right? Like totally. they can have a critical conversation about, you know, what they heard and whether that person was BSing or, you know, just have a really good chat and debate about that. Like that's really where the critical thinking yeah. happens. But you've just all of a sudden just sanitized you just sanitized that process and said like, nope, not happening. And we're not going to let any sort of critical thinking happen and let people actually, you know, work themselves through this. Right. Like it's, right. Yeah. it's not and helpful I, I mean, at all. You know, I, I just want to be clear. I don't, all those guys that I talked about, it's like Ben Shapiro, you know, I like Jordan Peterson. I'm not saying that I agree with, with what they have to say. Um, what I'm saying is that I agree with the fact that they should be able to, to say it. And they should have forums to say it as long as they're not being blatantly, you know, uh, racist or homophobic or whatever, or they're at, they're actually calling for harm to certain groups of society. Um, it's about so intention, I, I, right? I, 
I, sorry, what's that? It's about intention, right? It, totally. Like it, if, if, like Jordan and I, and I don't know, and I've watched some of his talks here and there. I don't know his full sort of uh, what he's about, but like if his intention is not to do harm, and he just feels like this is his way of communicating how to build a better society, and he has all the sort of positive intentions in the world, but his methodologies just don't work for some people. Sure, that's one thing, right? But you know, obviously, you don't, I, I don't think you know speakers who are intending to create violence and intending to do harm, like that's just not a productive thing in society, right? Yeah. So yeah. maybe not a need to have that kind of person there, but somebody who's just challenging thought and 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 has good intentions and believes a certain way, you know, I, why not have that challenging conversation invited? Yeah. Totally. Um, so th these next few parts are sort of the crux of what I want to talk about. Sorry, we're like an hour into this thing. I haven't been doing the most succinct job. But so the the, the third part of the book, they talk about how did we get here? And so they show that uh, there's no simple explanation for what's happening. Um, but they talk about six trends to attempt to sort of explain what's going on. Uh, first trend is rising political polarization. Uh, so they talk about studies show that politics are more divided than ever. Um, so like, for example, they'll say, um, uh, they would do surveys. So th they have done surveys for many, many years, um, on traits that are associated with political, um, choices. So if you're a liberal, they would say, Hey, here's the 20 hot topic items of the day whether it's like abortion, uh, the environment, uh, the economy, whatever it is, right? Uh, tell us how you vote and then tick the boxes that are most important to you. Mm. In the 1980s, uh, people that were liberal of the 10 um, you know, top items on the political agenda that year that were associated with liberals, you know, they would probably tick two of the 10. Same thing with Republicans. They would probably tick two of the 10. So if you were Republican in 1980, you, know, you were probably a fan of um you know the right to bear arms and maybe you weren't so keen on low abortion. taxes or something to or, yeah, yeah totally but yeah. maybe you didn't want low taxes anyways so in the 80s about two of those 10 things would be uh, common to mm -hmm. your average voter and these days it's uh something like eight or nine out of ten mm -hmm. meaning that um there's much less room in the middle to kind of uh, meet in the middle with your political opposite mm -hmm. so if you know you if you're a um Democrat today, you're closer to the stereotypical Democrat than you were in the 1980s, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And so there's a much greater polarization on on the political spectrum. Um, and there's a real negative aspect to to uh, to politics this day. Uh, these days, they they argue. So people used to associate with their political party because they believed in what the party stood for, or they believed in in the, in the people running the um, for the party. They were so. In, in other words, they were politically active for love of the party. Recently, though, people have become much more motivated to take uh, part in politics due to hatred of the opposition, not love for their party. If that makes mm. sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, which is awesome. Uh, this next one. So the second trend uh, that that's uh, they explore is a big one, and it's the rising rates of adolescent depression and anxiety um, in the generation known as iGen, which is mm -hmm. they were born in 1995 or later. Mm -hmm. And basically this is the generation that always had a computer in their pocket. Mm -hmm. You know, since they were, since the end of high school, 
they would have always had a computer in their pocket. Mm-hmm. And most of them much earlier. Most of them like age 12 probably, right? So in 2011, depression rates for 12 to 17-year-olds in the U.S., particularly for girls, started to increase um, from 4.5% to 6.4%. Um, sorry. So for boys, it, it increased almost 2%. So 4.5% to, to 6 For girls, it increased from around 13% to almost 20%. Mm. So that's one in five girls um, that are depressed as of 2011. Suicide rates for 14 to 19-year-olds have also increased in that time frame. Um, So attempted suicides, I think, are higher in girls. Successful suicides are higher in boys. Mm. And they relate that more to boys are a little bit more aggressive in nature uh, statistically speaking, a boy is much more likely to use a gun and a girl is much more likely to do something like take pills. Mm. So more girls are trying to kill themselves, but more boys are actually doing it. Successful, so there's yeah. been a steep increase in suicide amongst adolescents, and that's not good. Um, and some researchers link this to uh, the rapid spread of smartphones and social media. Mm-hmm. And some stats are pretty concerning. So um, the link is just that they've been able to make um, when kids use screens for two hours of leisure time or less a day, there is no elevated risk of depression. But above two hours, the risk grows larger with each additional hour spent on social media. Sorry, what's the age range for that? So that's 12 to 17. Okay. Um, and when uh, kids engaged in off-screen social activities are less likely to suffer from depression or commit suicide. So basically more screen time, higher higher rates of depression and suicide attempts or suicide, less screen time, less. And do we know uh, like kids, what's on the screen? Like does that matter? Or it does, just, yeah. So girls yeah. are much more impacted from, this, from the perspective of increased rates of depression due to screen time. Um, and I think it's when it comes to social media. So boys okay. are impacted by screen time in general, but much less than girls by social media. So mm. girls on social media are more highly impacted than boys w- with just screen time, if that makes yeah. sense. So, yeah, does, so yeah. the impact of social media is, is higher on girls. So, so uh, social media has a more negative impact on girls than boys. And it may be due to the enhanced beauty of female models and the fact that boys and girls mm-hmm. have different forms of preferred aggression. So boys are much more physical. Girls are much more relationally aggressive, they call it. So they try to negatively impact. Um, if, if they're trying to bully a girl, they try to negatively impact that girl's relationships as opposed to just like be physically aggressive with her. Mm-hmm. Boys much more likely mm-hmm. to come up punch you in the face as opposed to make some demeaning comment on, on your social media account. Girls are less likely to use physical tactics to bully, um, but they'll use more social tactics, such as not inviting a girl to a party, but then letting her know that she wasn't invited, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, where boys are much more likely to throw a punch, like I was saying before. So, yeah, so social media has a higher impact on girls than it does boys, but screen time has a negative impact on both boys and girls, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that watermark seems to be two hours. Less mm-hmm. than two hours, there aren't any significant elevated rates of depression. More than two hours... Uh, there is increased rates and an increase with every additional hour spent. Well, and that's crazy because I mean, now most of the school day you're on screens, right? Just to do your, just to do. Your, that's why I asked that question, right? Like, does does schoolwork count, right? Like, yeah. I mean, by by default, like you know, you're gonna just by the time you're gone through school, you're gonna easily pass two hours, right? Totally. And so then you're limited with like no TV time and no you know, recreational computer time or smartphone time or whatever, you know, like, 
that's almost nearly impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's scary because it's such a, we're, the, we're only on our phones more and more. Yeah. Um, so that's a big one is these, uh, these increasing rates of depression in mm -hmm. this I gen. So kids born after 1995, the third trend that they looked at is a shift to more fearful, protective and intensive parenting in middle-class and wealthy families. They think it's likely due to highly kidnapped, uh, sorry, highly televised kidnappings in the 70s and 80s. So there was a couple of very high profile kidnappings. The guy who started um, America's Most Wanted. Mm, John Walsh, yeah. Yeah, his son was kidnapped yeah. and murdered. Um, there was a handful of very highly televised child kidnappings that really, really scared parents. Well, and John Walsh, they ne the guy who killed his son, they never even told him where his body was, right? Well, they, well, they found him? his son's body. Did they? Yeah, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, but it was, it's pretty gruesome. It's, okay. uh, it's, it was hard to read about, honestly. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's bad news. Okay. Um, so parents are scared, but the thing is crime rates have dipped significantly. So the, the, the world is safer now than it ever was in the 70s, 80s, and mm -hmm. 90s. And in fact, in 2013, the murder rate in the United States was the same as it had been 60 years ago. So, it's about the safest time in in history to be a parent. Um, there's this story of the uh, worst mother, sorry, of the worst mother in the United States. And this woman lives in New York, and she taught her 11 year old to take the subway. Um, and she just she took him with her on the subway a bunch of times. She explained him how it worked. She gave him a map. She gave him coins for a phone call, and she told him to go to the police or somebody who works for the subway if you get lost. And she let him find his own way home one day from wherever they were. And it made front page news in some mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in some parts of the world. And they call her the worst mother of the world. When really mm -hmm. she was just teaching her kid how to take mm -hmm. the subway. Like mm -hmm. how empowered did that kid feel mm -hmm. after, right? Like must have felt so good. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, uh, that was an interesting story. There's also societal pressures to overprotect and shield kids from risk and stressors. There was a woman uh, in the States who was charged for leaving her 11-year-old unsupervised in a car while she ran into the store. Mm -hmm. That's insane, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's insane. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, there's these sort of societal pressure. Even there was a woman who left her, like, her 8- and 5-year-old uh, or something in her backyard while she was in the house. They were playing in the backyard, and somebody called the cops on her. Just, like, I don't um, – so there's – it's – Societal norms have shifted, certainly, to being much more protective of children, which, you know, in a lot of ways is probably good, but it also puts these pressures on parents to be a bit more helicopter, um, helicopter parenty, which isn't a good thing. You know, it's interesting. Uh, sorry, just as an aside, Vina and I were out uh, on her bike, and and these two kids, I want to say, if I guess, like maybe they were like, nine ten right they're just kind yeah. of walking together and avina's like where's their mommy and daddy why aren't their mommy and daddy with them right and i was just surprised that she asked that because i didn't i didn't even blink like i saw those two kids i was like didn't even think like oh where their parents were like mm -hmm. i don't know just like growing up it wasn't a big deal for me to roam around the neighborhood by oh, myself right. at that age and uh so it, I, I maybe i haven't adapted myself but it didn't even dawn to me but for her it was kind of like and I don't know, I don't want to read too much into it, but it was just an interesting observation for her to be like, where are her parents? And that's just kind of out of the ordinary or whatever. So I don't know, I just kind of explained and said, well, they're both together, they're older, they kind of know what they're doing, and it's not a big deal. And 
Um, so, okay, right? But, yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, I think it. Um, it's easy for me to like picture my kids as twelve year olds like having fun around the neighborhood. What's hard for me to picture is like how you step by step sort of get them to the place where they're, you know, comfortable, confident, and like you have faith in them just to be on their own for hours outside mm -hmm. unsupervised. Like to go from where we are now to there, man, that's gonna be. <laughs> that's something that's less clear to me, but we'll have to figure it out. Um, uh, when you're overprotective of kids, it sort of teaches some of those cognitive distortions that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, so it's, anyways, it uh, that the whole helicopter parenting, whether you're doing it or society sort of expects parents to do it now, it, it can have negative impacts on your kids in the long term. Uh, fourth trend that they talk about is the widespread play and risk deprivation for members of IGEN. So that's at 1995 and later. Um, so um, what we were just talking about, there's been a significant decline of unsupervised free play. And they, they need, kids need free play. So the authors say that it contributes to, quote unquote, finalizing the intricate wiring process of neural development. Mm. Um, so it, it can sort of help formulate behavior and gain confidence and empower them and all this stuff to sort of be on their own and make decisions on their own and um, identify and sort of measure consequences on their own. And uh, so there's a real benefit to unsupervised play, but there's been a significant decline of that. Um, what that's going to do to creativity too, right? Totally. Like, totally. That's yeah, going like, to be, we, we talked about in our fourth industrial revolution, right? Like sort of the skills that are going to be needed, like creativity is going to be huge. And if kids are, always in structure and Wayne Gretzky talks about this, right? Sorry to kind of go off on a tangent, uh -huh. tangent, but he talks about this. I know you like hockey sort of references, but he talks about how the game while, while these hockey players are faster, stronger physically, just at a much higher level than when he played, he said the creativity has, has gone away, right? Cause everything is just structured play. Whereas before people, kids would just pick up a puck or, or, or pick up a ball if they're playing street hockey and just go, right? And that's what it was for him. And that's where the magic happened. And you don't see that as much anymore, right? Interesting. And, yeah, and so coming from him, that's a, that's a big deal for him to, for somebody to say that. Right. And, and so I, I just kind of extend that to just kids being kids in general and learning skills is you just got to let them make mistakes and, and, and let them be and play unsupervised. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you, even like you think about if you want to get into, like, let's say if you're told from a young age that you need to go to university and you need to get a master's and you need to get a PhD or you need to, you know, get on with some law firm or whatever, like they, they look at all these extracurriculars that you have. And so from a young age, you know, you're put into all these things to sort of build up this resume mm -hmm. or whatever. And so that, so, you know, so their argument is kids these days have, um, no time for free play just because there's so many extracurricular activities and there's so many pressures to, you know, oh, oh well, you need to go to these um, elite universities and uh, here's all the requirements for that. So you have to mm -hmm. study all the time and you have to do it. Or if, you know, like, like high-level athletes, to make the NHL now, you're in, so like you're playing hockey all over the province for mm -hmm. the entire hockey season. And as soon as that ends, you're in dry land training or power skating or whatever it is. And then like you have your, 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 um, you know, fitness coaches and like these kids just do nothing but hockey for their entire lives. And for the ones that make it great, but for the ones that don't, I mean, that's all you've known and now it's over. Um, so there's just like the expectations on kids now is just absolutely insane. And so this decline of free play has had negative impacts. And they talk, they frame free play as, um, 
it's freely chosen and directed by the participants for its own sake. So it's not like pursued to achieve any kind of goal or mm -hmm. whatever, right? Like you're just playing to play basically. Um, so that's the fourth trend and I'll just kind of go over them and go over them again quickly at the end. But fifth is an expanding campus bureaucracy, taking an increasingly overprotective posture. And we've talked about this a lot before, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. increased administrative bureaucracy on university campuses, like parents stepping into conflicts between kids. So like the university is not allowing sort of these contentious viewpoints to be debated and open, mm -hmm, you know, that they're, mm -hmm. they're sort of stepping in and allowing this behavior to occur where people are being banned from campus and all the stuff that we've already talked about. Um, and then there's a rising passion for justice combined with a growing commitment to obtaining equal outcomes on all areas. So people more like we live in the, you know, in the Twitter gotcha society, right? And people are rewarded for, you know, calling out somebody for whatever, even if it's sort of a benign comment, but maybe you can interpret it in a way that um, could be seen as disparaging some group or another, even though if that's not the intent of the comment, mm -hmm. you know, people are rewarded for, you know, for saying, oh, look at you, like you're whatever. Um, so it's sort of that whole cancel culture that mm -hmm. that we're experiencing now. And there's, so there's this real passion for justice and people that are doing sort of this call out um, are sort of rewarded for it. Mm -hmm. So it, I don't know. It's um, so that's not not awesome. Um, so just to summarize those things, sorry, this is getting a little long in the tooth here. But no, rising political polarization, rising rates of adolescent depression, um, a shift to more fearful, protective, and intensive parenting, widespread play and risk deprivation for members of that I gen. So born after nineteen ninety five, kids that have the internet in their pocket basically their whole lives, um, expanding campus bureaucracy and a rising passion for justice. Mm. So, um, so it paints a pretty, you know, doomy, gloomy picture, but then they kind of bring it all home with here's, here's 10 ways that you can kind of raise riser kids. Or, sorry. You can raise wiser kids. Man, I've right. not been in front of a microphone in a long time. And so I'll just kind of go through those. I think this is the most helpful part of the book, honestly, like they explain all these terrible things that are happening, but, what are some things that as young parents like you and I are, what, what can you do to sort of prepare your kid um, for the road, not the road for your kid? Mm -hmm. That's a quote from the book. Sage. That's yeah. Sage. Actually, they, they, it's like some old proverb, I guess. But I read it in if, the book. So I'm if gonna... the, you know, you could have pulled it off if I didn't see the glare from your screen that you're reading something. So yeah. Oh, I told you these <laughs> notes I took like four months ago. Um, so number one, assume your kids are more capable this month than they were last month and communicate with your kids and learn what tasks or challenges they are up for. So that's mm -hmm. basically the big thing of like, watch your kids, watch their capabilities grow and allow them to take on tasks that are right at the edge of their capabilities. Right. And just assume that they can do a little bit more this month than they could last month. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, maybe give them the benefit of the doubt on their capabilities more often than not. And that's something I think would be hard to do for a parent personally. Um, Cause there's going to be some, you know, some reasonable or moderate risk probably associated with some of those things. But it's it's a good thing to keep in the back of your mind. I think like our, our kids are growing, they're learning, they're becoming more physically and mentally able. They need these sort of fresh challenges, and you need to sort of give them the benefit of the doubt on this. And stuff. they're becoming more and more independent, right? As totally. we probably see with our young kids, you know, you they if you don't if you don't 
make that assumption, like you said, that they're that you know this month is going to be better than the last, and you don't bring them to that place, like you said, that 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 uh, that boundary of where you know there's a little bit of risk. You're not building trust with them, right? That they're gonna they're gonna think that oh, my parents don't trust me enough. Like that's a whole complex that I think a lot of us deal with with our parents, right? Like of of having this constant fight, even at our age, where our parents still kind of want to handhold in us in certain situations, you know. And and so I, I don't know. For me, I'm very sort of cognizant of that, of making sure that she knows that I believe in her and and that she can take those risks. Um, but yeah, I can understand how it's hard, but I think the, the trust thing for me is, is I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to understate that. Yeah. 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 No, it's a good point. Um, so they talk about letting your kids take more small risks and the example they give mm -hmm. is an example I talked about earlier with that kid hammering nails. Mm -hmm. it, so if your kids like learn how to hammer nail and he's going to hit his thumb. Yeah. Like a hammer on the thumb sucks. But it's it's probably a reasonable risk to let him take, especially because mm -hmm. they're not swinging the hammer too hard. But if he hits his thumb once, he's gonna remember that mm -hmm. definitely more than you saying a hundred times, "Don't hit your thumb," or you not letting him mm -hmm. do it at all because you're worried about risking him hitting his thumb with a hammer. So let your kids take more small risks. Um, the thing I get caught up with is that if 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 they hit their uh, their thumb with a hammer and then all of a sudden they never come back to the hammer for a while, right? It's like then okay. I, I have the, I have this internal pressure. I'm like, oh, I got to bring the hammer back because I got to learn how to use a hammer, right? And but then but then the magic actually comes if you just let them give them some space, they naturally just kind of come back, right? But that's the thing I struggle with is like I have this internal clock of like, okay, they've recognized they made the mistake, but then Avina will just won't come back to it because she just she knows I was like, oh, that thing is dangerous. I'm just not going to touch that. And I'm I get this internal pressure feeling like, oh no, it's like it's just a matter of like you learning how to use the hammer. Like the hammer is not dangerous, right? Like, and so then I feel like oh, I want to show her, but she might not be right. Like that's the thing I yeah. I do. No, with. I don't know if you feel balance. if like, you feel the same way, but think about when you were a kid. Um, I don't know if you ever tried skateboarding or like I remember I rode a BMX bike bike off a jump once and just ate shit so hard uh or i i tried skateboarding once and ate shit so hard just like scraped up and cuts and bruises and like blood and mm -hmm. i was just like i'm not getting on one of those like that sucked and i never did i never like i, I don't ride bmx bikes now and i can barely skateboard um so it's a good point and i don't that's the thing that i sort of struggle with a little bit is how do you how do you effectively manage those risks? And you're going to be wrong on some of them, right? Like you're going to let your kid take a risk one day that they probably shouldn't be taking. There's going to be some kind of consequence. Mm -hmm. But in the long term, letting them take that one risk that they maybe, that maybe you shouldn't let them take, but let's say that they took eight that they should have that maybe you were on the fence about. These guys argue that, you know, in the long run, letting your kids take more small risks and assuming that they're more capable than they were last month uh, in the long run is going to be. Yeah, that makes sense more beneficial developmentally mm -hmm. uh third thing start letting kids walk places and play outside unsupervised as soon as they are able mm. uh, and they say you know if, if you feel like they're too young let them go but send them with a sibling send them with a neighbor kid whatever it is but let children have unsupervised play as soon as they are able mm -hmm. um, so that's an interesting point encourage kids to walk or ride bikes to and from school at the earliest stage possible 
help kids find a community of kids in your neighborhood who come from families that share your commitment to not overprotecting kids. So this kind of goes the same way. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. allow them to be unsupervised. Let them find kids. If you're sort of uncomfortable with them going off on their own, find somebody. And even better, if there's other kids in the neighborhood that are around their age that are also allowed to do these things unsupervised, pursue that and mm-hmm, sort of let mm-hmm. them do it. Um, send kids to overnight summer camps in the woods, if possible, for a few weeks without any devices. Did you ever mm-hmm. have a summer camp growing up? Uh, no, not really. It wasn't really wasn't a thing for me. Uh, I got invited to go to one uh, in grade seven, but that was through school. But never, never like my parents would send me to one or whatever. Uh, so, okay. what so about like, you? Uh, I went to sports camps. They weren't yeah. in the woods, but it was like week long sports camps. Yeah. Um. It was fun. Just go to meet people and just play a sport you liked and whatever and get you out of the house. And I think now, now, like, how sweet would that be? Because they would usually book it the same week for, for me and my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so for them, it would just be like one week of yeah. sweet freedom. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting my kids in sport yeah. camps the same yeah. week for sure. Um, encourage kids to engage in productive disagreement. Teach kids how to debate. Don't shield them from disagreement. Um uh, like this is something that can be modeled in your conversations with other people when your kids are around, like a healthy disagreement, mm-hmm. um, you know, challenging thoughts in a respectful manner, just exposing that to them, uh, exposing them to that at an early age and just have that be sort of a common part of, of how they view communication and um, sort of the example you set that I thought that was a good one. I don't know how much I do that. I was thinking about that mm. when I read this. I don't, I don't, I don't know how much I do that. Like it's uh, certainly not, I'll, I'll do it with like close friends and all that stuff, but I don't know how much I just do it day to day. Like, you know, politely challenge somebody on something or if I'm just like a yes, man, just nod to everything. Mm. Spineless worm. Um, teach kids certain forms of cognitive behavioral therapy. Let kids watch you examine and talk back your exaggerated thoughts. Mm. Um, I think that's a really interesting one because I think the teaching kids how to handle anxiety at an, at an early age, it would be incredibly helpful. Like what a tool, mm-hmm. you know, if they're worried because they, whatever, tomorrow they're, I don't know, like they have a soccer game and they're worried they're going to get kicked in the face or something. And you just like sort of walk them back from that and help them sort of walk through what, what the realistic point of view is and, um, you know, what's, what's likely to happen. It's probably not going to be the worst thing in the world. I, anyways, I think that's a really, really interesting thing to sort of pursue. With For sure. Yeah. Helping them identify exaggerated thoughts and helping them kind of walk back from that. Like what that's mm-hmm. a tool they'll use the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, teach kids mindfulness. Teach them to pay attention in a particular way in the mm-hmm. present moment and, non- and non-judgmentally. This can reduce anxiety, enhances coping, increases compassion, and a number of other positive things. You know, that's a – sorry, I know we're getting here at the end of the time, but that one to me is interesting about teaching them because – kids are the most mindful people ever right yeah. like they're always observing the smallest things that we take for granted because obviously we've kind of seen these things over and over again but they're just always in their own little world I like one what point does that change right like and do we have a role in shaping that and i wonder maybe if that's sort of what the book is speaking to is like is for those kids who have who have maybe gone through structure or uh and and are and are and are no longer sort of or who've had that ability to be mindful taken away from them, right? Because otherwise kids are the most mindful creatures ever, right? Like they are completely present. And it's funny how, you know, 
we now as adults are like, how do we become more present when if those things wouldn't have been stripped from us in the first place? And I don't say, I don't mean that in a way like our parents did that or whatever. I just mean like stripped from just from every way possible from different people, whatever experiences, um, and maybe even our, by ourselves, um, we would have been present creatures through our, you know, young teens, through our older teens, through early adulthood and not have to go to a retreat somewhere to, to be awoken and, and become more present. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's kind of ridiculous how, how we've gone so far from that. But yeah, but it's, yeah. it's a, it's, a, if you think honestly about the minutes in your day when you were hundred percent present, there's days where for me it's zero. And that, that's insane to me. Like mm -hmm. where I'm always like distracted on something. I'm always like, you know, sort of just like reacting and then like my mind's on something else or whatever. And it's a real, I don't know, but I wasn't like that at one point, And now that I kind of got like that. Right. And so, yeah. When does that happen? You, right. What's that? When does that happen? Like it at what totally age does, does that sort of been like, okay, what I'm looking at right now, whereas if I was three, that, that thing that I'm looking at made was my world. And now all of a sudden it's no longer my world. Like I don't need, I can just ignore that. I can be distracted by things now. Like how does that change? That's a, I don't know. For me, that's an interesting question. Yeah. I agree with it. Uh, and the last tip they give is uh, teach teach your children to give people the benefit of the doubt when possible. Mm -hmm. and I think that this is more related to and to if somebody says something that offends you, but you think it came from from a good place, like they're just ignorant or something. Um, but they meant to say something. They meant to say something um, in like good spirit, in in, mm -hmm. in like good faith, but they just use the wrong words or whatever, like. Teach them to give people the benefit of the doubt. Be like, you know what? They probably they probably didn't mean the insulting way that I'm interpreting that. Um, I should give them the benefit of the doubt here. There's, there's mm -hmm. obviously exceptions to that. You know, people being passive aggressive and whatever. But to to teach them to say, you know what? That in instances where y you can uh, decipher as much to give people the benefit of the doubt, and I think that's an interesting one too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, anyways, that's that's all I want to talk about. Sorry, I went so long and. I don't think I did the book justice. I, you know, this one's probably oh. like, th like this one probably got four and a half Kyle's out of five. It was really, really good. I really enjoyed it mainly because it made me really, really examine because I, I had some of those cognitive distortions. Certainly I, and I, mm -hmm. and I still do. And I generally associate with that left leaning group. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, when I read about those speakers being blocked from campuses, I was like, hell yeah. Like those people are, you know, whatever homophobes never in this book, I will now go watch a Ben Shapiro video and try to understand his viewpoint. And I come up with a counter to it. If, if I don't agree with what he's saying, I now come up with a counterpoint to it based on some form of evidence. Whereas before I very much, I would just take whatever my visceral reaction was as, as truth. Mm. And so th this book was really a turning point for me to start um, addressing some of those cognitive distortions and start addressing some of my biases and to start to stop painting broad groups of people with with a single brush and writing off mm. entire groups of people um and you know finding the good in individuals who maybe associate with with areas that are you know that have beliefs opposite of mine and, and mm -hmm. you know, seeing the individual for the individual and not this tribalism anyways this book had a, had a pretty big effect on, on on how i view things and i i'm a little disappointed with how i reviewed it but um 
I, I would encourage folks that found any of this interesting from a parent standpoint, from a, you've recognized some cognitive distortions that I've described in yourself um, to just being curious about sort of what's going on with our youth and the increased depression rates and, and even university campuses and how this trend is a little concerning. This book is great. And, and they, um, <clears throat> I feel like in my description, it feels like they sort of try to beat up on people that are left leaning politically uh, and the book doesn't come across like that. Those are just the examples that I focused on. And they, the thing is, every argument they have is firmly rooted in some form of study or fact or mm -hmm. evidence that if you don't agree with, you can go kind of search the opposite side of it. But anyways, this book was a big paradigm shift for me and in, in, in how I viewed a lot of things. So I would encourage people to read it. Well, I'm, I'm eager to, I mean, I bought it after you spoke so highly about it. I had heard about this book when it first came out and it was always on my wish list. But once you kind of raved about it, I definitely picked it up. So I'm glad we had this conversation, uh, especially like you said, it's very relevant as we, as we raise our kids and how we think about that approach going forward. So I'm glad we had this conversation. We might have to, hopefully at some point we can even have a conversation with, with one of those authors, you know, that'd be, that'd be an awesome thing to, to pursue in the future. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. No, I agree, buddy. It'd be a big get, a big mm -hmm. get. For sure. Popular, for sure. But, uh, for sure. You know, we are too. <laughs> For sure. Um, okay, yeah, we so should probably wrap this thing up, I guess. Hey, like we're like, what are we at? Like an hour and a half, or what? Yeah, pretty much an hour and a half. So hopefully, folks have sticking with us. Um, if you guys have any, you know, comments or thoughts about anything that was sort of that was sort of said, or you guys have thoughts about the coddling of the American mind, the book, um, or your approach to parenting, we'd love to hear from you. I mean, this is a thing that sort of um, some of the comments that we've gotten on the videos. You know, I love the engagement that 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 we do get. Want to see more of that? So, if you guys have things to add, please sort of uh, share those things. Would love to hear from you guys. So, great to have you back, man. Glad nice to, to have here. you on this episode, and um, looking forward to the the next one. Then we have GMOs. some guests lined up, and it's going to be fun. Yeah, GMOs, yeah. buddy. Big debate. It's going to be. It's gonna oh, it's going to be because yeah. of rift in our friendship. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm glad we're doing this remotely. So. <laughs> <laughs> just punch you in the face. Actually, you're the one that works out. I don't want to get in a fight with you. Just uh, let all my aggressions out, all my little microaggressions. So. <laughs> I'm going to give you trauma. <laughs> all right, buddy. Appreciate yeah. you as always. I yeah, appreciate you. Nice job. Yeah, see you later.